Hello, listeners. Welcome back to this bonus surprise episode of Movie Mindset. Surprise, Hessa. It's been it's been quite a summer at the movies. How was mm-hmm. your how was your how was your summer at the cinema been so far? My summer at the cinema has been fantastic. I saw Barbie. Obviously, I haven't seen Oppenheimer quite yet because it's hard to find tickets for the IMAX 70 millimeter screenings. So you look you'll accept nothing less than the full 70 millimeter IMAX e- eardrum splitting Oppenheimer well, experience. I I have heard from some of my sources that the 70 millimeter print is better than the IMAX because they're all the shots that aren't shot in IMAX get blown up in the IMAX print from 70 millimeter which makes things look weird. But um, yeah, I'm still trying to see it on the biggest screen possible. I mean, fuck it, we ball, you know. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to blow my own uh, mind. Well, I have, I have yet to see Barbie. I have seen Oppenheimer and thought it was great. And this is my way of introducing this episode: is saying, I know we promised a Barbie Heimer um, uh, summer movie episode of this show, and this has been uh, an amazing summer for movies. It's been Bafo Bo for Hollywood. But of course, this is all happening at a time when people feel really energized to go back to the movies, dress up and go to movies. And when, you know, two summer releases are like big cultural events and like and at least as far as Oppenheimer is actually a very good, serious movie. Um, That being said, uh, we are not doing Barbie and Oppenheimer for our bonus summer movie uh, movie mindset episode because I support the SAG and WGA strike, and also I don't want people getting mad at me. Yeah, same. Now, keep in mind, now, listener, keep in mind, if you are listening to this episode of Movie Mindset, you have already wittingly or unwittingly entered into a contract to never get mad at Hessa or myself. Mm-hmm. So, so if, you're, if you're mad that we're not doing Barbie Oppenheimer or that we were maybe considering doing Bobby, Barbie Oppenheimer, you are in violation of your contract with movie mindset. So let's we need to take a step back or we can take legal action against you. Um, this is not to say I, I still really want to do a Barbie and Oppenheimer episode. I have tons of thoughts on Oppenheimer and I'm sure plenty once I see Barbie, but you know, it's just, this is a gray area here and you know, my, our status as movie influencers, it's, it's a gray area, but I don't want to trot on anyone's toes by, you know, it's, it's a gray area as to what constitutes promoting a current release Hollywood movie um, while this strike is going on. So I'm, yeah. not, I'm just not going to not going to touch that live wire right now. Just all, solidarity to the WGA and SAG. Um, yeah, I just want to clarify. I I'm solidarity with the WGA SAG. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Rotten hell. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> when will these greedy actors just get back to work <laughs> yeah. so we can start talking about movies? And, you know, we, uh, we, we saw Asteroid City. Great, had a great mm-hmm. time in that. Really fun. I saw uh, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning, possibly the dumbest entry in the franchise yet, but still <laughs> had a great time seeing that movie. I've got plenty of these, plenty of thoughts to spare, but we're gonna put a pin in that for now, dear listener, and just bring you, um, 
bring you actually like a report from Hesse and I summer at the cinema because mm-hmm. today's episode is inspired by our a recent trip to the sort of um, the mothership of movie mindset, the Roxy Hotel and Cinema here mm-hmm. in New York City. And shout outs to our friend uh, Nick Newman for yes. uh, helping to present a 35 millimeter screening of Howard Hawks's 1959 Western Rio Bravo that we attended over the weekend. And this was pure kismet because Catherine and I bought tickets to this, the showing of Rio Bravo on Sunday evening. We picked out our, our seats in the theater and then who comes who like, you know, like the, 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 the doors on the saloon clap open, who mm-hmm. comes moseying into town. <laughs> the piano Hesse player stops playing. <laughs> Everyone turns. Hesse Danny moseying and looking at, just looking for a movie. And then I, I, I go, here's your ticket. And I flipped it into a spittoon for it. I was like, you want to see <laughs> yeah. this 35 millimeter screening of Howard Hawks's classic American Western and fish it out was- of there. I was crawling for the spittoon and then Kath stopped me, stopped my hand. <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is a great bit of, uh, of, of movie kismet. And Hesse was actually sitting right next to Catherine and I, you know, great, yeah. mind, great movie minds think alike. And mm-hmm. that inspired this episode. We figured, you know, it's summer. It's hot out. What are you going to do? What, what is there to do in the summer? Well, the answer is hang out with your friends and take it easy. And like in light of that, we're going to talk about two Howard Hawks classic westerns, 1959's Rio Bravo and 1966's El Dorado, which are gives an opportunity to talk about, you know, uh, American master Howard Hawks, the sort of classic American western as a genre. But more than anything, to talk about two movies that are really, at the end of the day, just about hanging out with your friends. They're about smoking cigarettes with your friends, going on walks taking a bath with your homie. Um, this is just, this is a movie, it, 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 Rio Bravo especially, um, portrays like everything that makes Howard Hawks the kind of auteurist critic and uh, filmmaker's favorite director about how he sort of, uh, in every genre of, every conceivable genre of movie, like displayed a total mastery and also sort of smuggled in a lot of his as Roger Ebert called it, laconic values and sort of like uh, his personal style across Westerns, war movies, screwball comedies. I mean, Hessa, where, where, where do you want to start with Howard Hawks? I mean, where do you even start? He's the king, like noir movies, horror movies. The like, thing, to have and to have not. Yes. Um, uh, bringing up baby. Just sleep. those three movies right there. Like, how, yeah. think how varied in, but also how similar in, in his Beautiful economy of style uh, Howard Hawks manages to create mm-hmm. in all of his films. Bringing up Baby, one of the great thrillers of all time. <laughs> Completely nerve-wracking film. <laughs> Bringing up Baby, one of my favorite comedies of all time. You've got um, uh, Red Sergeant, River. Y- Sergeant York, Red River, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, uh, Scarface, His Girl Friday. Uh, the, the list goes on and on here. The but, Big Sleep. Yeah. By way of introducing Howard Hawks to, to you, listener, if you're not familiar with his movies or haven't, haven't taken the opportunity to watch a classic like Rio Bravo or Red River, um, basically, if, 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 as similar to what I said about Visconti, and if like Scorsese is your guy, you have to take the time, just take the time out to just see The Leopard and experience that movie. If John Carpenter is your guy, you mm-hmm. must, must, must watch Howard Hawks's movies to understand the carpenters like his same that economy of style that very sparse 
stark compositions and his use of music. And more than anything, as we see in Rio Bravo and El Dorado, movies about love stories about men, but people who have to survive under pressure, people who have to like kind of come together in a single location, besieged by some outer force that they have to, th- mm-hmm. like, have to sort of learn to work together and survive in this kind of uh, bottle conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the impending outlaw kind of the you know chaotic outlaws encroaching on uh, the lawmen who are often holed up, always end up holed up in the sheriff's office in the middle of town. Those circumstances that present themselves in both of these movies, like the, the pressure cooker scenario, is really just an excuse to have three guys kind of get to know who are either already in love with each other and rekindle that love between one another, or just kind of like get to know each other and just hang out, sing songs. Like I said, take a bath together. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so like Rio Bravo and El Dorado are basically, it's a, El Dorado is a remake of Rio Bravo, essentially. And then yeah. how Hawks, Hawks would go on again to remake this movie a third time in Rio Lobo. And yeah. all three of them star... John Wayne, the Duke, you know, the sort of the, the icon of the sort of classic American Western and kind of reactionary mid-century American masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, in, in these movies, they just they, they employ the same tropes. It's just variations on the same themes here. And like I said, there's the theme of hanging out with your friends, taking a <laughs> taking a walk. But it's also about having the one homie who fell off and you have to help out. And yeah. there's also... Put on, put on the new kid who wants to be gang, but has a name named after a state like Colorado or Mississippi. Yeah. Sort of the, the hot young kid. There's the sort of there's the, the rich cattle baron. Uh, there's the fallen woman. Uh, mm-hmm. There's the, the the horrors of alcoholism. Yeah, and then and then of course you have to have the rootin' tootin' dag gummit nineteenth century coot stereotype played by yeah, uh, Walter Brennan. <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, the guy who says consarn it and jump a Jehoshaphat and <laughs> Gang, dang, gubbit. It's about, it's about, like I said, male love stories, stories of male camaraderie. And uh, credit again to Nick Newman for, for sharing um, uh, clips from John Carpenter's uh, TCM curation of some of his favorite movies and him talking about Howard Hawks and Rio Bravo and how influential this movie has been on his career because he's made this movie as a horror movie, not a Western, over and over again, like Assault on Precinct 13, The Thing, Prince of Darkness, like... In the classic American Western, in, in these Howard Hawks movies, you see it's like the pressure, the men loving each other and thriving under pressure, they cohere to form a kind of American identity. And like as we talked about in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the, uh, the formation of a proto-American community and how like the, the, the force of the law to, to bind civilization against the forces of sort of um, strength, aggression, and, kind of, and money. Yeah, money especially. Yeah. And in John Carpenter's movies, like those same forces cohere to bring about annihilation in the, in the apocalypse. Yeah. The devil. But, <laughs> like the yeah, literal devil yeah. is the one who's trying to get into the, the jail. But like it, it's about how like the sort of the, the repetition and exercise of, of these tropes and just sort of like the, the, the great American canvas of like the, the lawman, the drunk, the rancher, uh, the, the fallen woman, you know, like how, how these things kind of come together and what they mean about American identity. And in John Carpenter's comments on this movie, he says that this movie and really a theme throughout all of Hawks' work to him is about the measure of being a professional. 
there's a line in it where John Wayne says to Dean Martin's character, can, are you good enough? You know, it's this question of can you do the work? And mm-hmm. I, th- I think about that, like that mark of professionalism and like th- this lack of pretension that exists in John Carpenter's work that you see in, 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 in Howard Hawks as well. And I just like to say, like, you know, our experiencing this um, projected on 35 millimeter at the Roxy, I mean, was fantastic because you really get this magical. The, the Technicolor, the, the Technicolor in both of these movies, those big blue skies, the deep red of John Wayne's, you know, cowboy shirts, the way his mm-hmm. eyes pop, you know, called old blue eyes. It's just every frame of these movies looks like a, like a canvas. It's just, it's, it's so beautifully and richly and warmly. There's just such a... Vivid, like... Yeah. There's such a warmth to Rio Bravo. And I guess, like, basically the same movie. I will say... El Dorado is a great Western. It's just a yeah. great Western. And you've got, you've got Robert Mitchum, who's awesome. You've got James Caan as Mississippi, the young, cool kid. I describe like El Dorado is like Rio Bravo with extra steps. It's like got there's... a little more action. Yeah, a little bit yeah. of backstory is a little bit more fleshed out. It's a great Western. But in expanding the aperture of this, like, this very simple like, the pl- plot and tropes, I think it loses something because it's, it's merely a great classic Western, whereas I think Rio Bravo is truly something special. I think it's like yeah. an American original. It's a, a true American masterpiece, a really singular, unique movie. I, I thought I liked El Dorado more until I rewatched them both this morning. And I was like, no, yeah, Rio, Rio Bravo is the goat for sure. They both, they both go so hard, though. They're both awesome. It's just, in Rio Bravo, it's just, once again, it's like, it's, it's this. It's the, it's the lushness of the Technicolor, but it's also like the complete minimalism of it. Like Rio Bravo is basically a couple set changes. That's what happens in that movie. Like they just there's a, there's three or four locations, and they cycle about walking about back and forth between them, and then there's a climax at the end. But it really is just the the pacing of it is like I don't know about you, Hesso. Let's talk about our sort of our relationship with the Western genre because it took me a while to sort of understand and get to like the kind of classic era of 40s and 50s American Westerns because like I always loved the Western genre but for to, for to me it was always about Clint Eastwood and those 60s and 70s kind of uh, subversive countercultural uh, sort of very modern uh, sort of or sort of postmodern Westerns and like the, the sort of the contrast between Clint and John Wayne is this kind of generational divide because you know Clint whether he was an anti-hero or not Clint is always cool and yeah. John Wayne was is just like he's the antithesis of cool. Yeah. He's a big lug. He's a big hoss, as uh <laughs> my friends Will Sennett and Nate Fisher might say. <laughs> he's, um, he's a big old he, yeah, he's a big hoss. And, and you see gets, him standing next to Dean Martin. He's a big guy. Dean Martin looks like a kid huge. standing next to him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he is huge. Especially when he's standing next to Carlos in Rio Bravo. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah, just yeah, yeah. towering above him. Um but he like yeah the John Wayne's character in this is very like I don't know like goofy it's he has something akin to like Cary Grant in bringing up baby especially in Rio Bravo with a lot of like the quick repartee of the dialogue the, like the banter between him and Angie Dickinson where it's like yeah he, like the more the more she flirts with him the more flustered and angry he gets yeah or Carlos where he. Carlos, there's a scene where Carlos is trying to explain to him how he got a black eye, trying to get Angie Dickinson on the on the carriage, and 
it's just a, a wonderful comedy of of uh, misunderstandings and um, yeah, there's there's a certain like goofball quality, not goofball, like almost reluctant kind of silliness to him that I think does come across and that I think gets ignored a lot when people talk about John Wayne's like persona like they I think a lot of people think the man who shot Liberty Valance where it's very like he's very taciturn very serious not not a joke in sight just a like basically a statue like might as well be stop motion and then in this where he's like kissing Stumpy in Rio Bravo where he like kisses Stumpy on the forehead and then runs out of the room before he can like <laughs> slap his yeah. ass yeah, they're having fun in this. They're just it's just guys having fun, and, and yeah. you know, like yeah, you're right. Like people think of Wayne as this very like you know because of his cultural politics or just mm-hmm. sort of like being associated with this kind of anti counterculture. But no, he he is kind of being a goofball in these movies. And I guess the thing for me with John Wayne is that I always sort of like I I, I kept him at an arm's length when I was younger. But now I wholly embrace him as like a great American movie star. But the thing is, in all of his most iconic movies, he is absolutely outshone and outclassed by his co-stars in every oh, absolutely. role. Absolutely. In, every, in almost every role. And the thing is, I don't really say that as like a demerit on Wayne, because to me, like John Wayne is just the constant. Like he, he's just sort of... Um, He's the he's the he's the assurance. It's like the deal you make when when you sit down and press play, like the the handshake deal that you make with the filmmakers. He is the constant, the assurance that all of the other Western tropes are legible and like correctly placed. It's yeah. just him there as this kind of like uh, like static figure is what makes was, legible all the other um, uh, tropes and 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 sort of meaning of the movies. I I was thinking like kind of the same thing when I was. Um like rewatching Rio Bravo when I was like, okay, so there's Colorado who represents like the, this like male vision of like youth kind of. And then there's Stumpy who represents this like kind of older male character. Who's like a goofball and who's like past his prime, but still useful and still like, you know, still does the work that he, he still does the work, you know? He still does praxis, and then he still he still he still acts as the jailer. And yeah. if, if 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 chance comes in with three fellas, I don't know. They don't need to open up that. I'm doing. I'm doing. I'm blasting. <laughs> the the line where Stumpy, as Walter Brennan says, "You know what I'm going to do? I'm blasting. I'm going to stop I'm blasting." blasting. I'm He's blasting. the best part of the movie, honestly. He's so good. But um, and then there's um, you know, Dean Martin as kind of this like middle-aged man Borachon, the, the yeah, drunk this before jeffrey if jeffrey lebowski's the dude there was dino dean martin as just dude, dude. Mm-hmm. and he um and then john wayne kind of stands outside of this like trinity of like yes masculine types as kind of just the arbiter, the the yes, father he, he of is, everything. He is the, yeah, the, he is the measure against which all other masculinities are sort of judged and and uh, yeah, like sort of contrasted with. And yeah, you're you're totally right. There's this the trinity of like youth, middle age, and um, uh, sort of senility. <laughs> and yeah, do, do, dotage <laughs> represented by yeah. Walter Brennan and and Stumpy, but all of them are like it goes back to this Carpenter question of are you good enough? You know, can you do the job? Like with Colorado, played by uh, Ricky Nelson, who was 
uh, for his time, like this kind of teen heartthrob crooner. Swing. Like, they put a twink yeah. in there with him. It's... And it would be so, sort of like um, like Harry Styles being in a movie today. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's the young he's the young gun and everyone says how fast he is. And then it's this question of like, is he really fast enough? Is he really as good as people say he is? And then with Dino, it's, it's a, the, the real emotional core of Rio Bravo is Dean Martin's character and, and a truly phenomenal performance by Dino, who he was always like kind of comic relief and, and playing or sort of a caricature of himself. But this is a, his performance in this movie really does um, quite movingly and seriously deal with alcoholism. And mm-hmm. sort of like and it's, it's, the, the core of the movie is about his, his struggle to reclaim his dignity. And the dignity of being useful to others, of being noted, like of being attentive to and helpful to your friends. My favorite is um, the way that they portray it visually through his like costume and hair and like facial hair, because he at the beginning of the movie he's a total drunk and he has this kind of sexy five o'clock shadow, but he's wearing like this disgusting like Henley shirt, yeah, and it's like. And they do the same with Robert Mitchum. His face in, is always like like dirty. There's like big yeah. streaks of mud on his face from just like f- f- passing out in like a horse yeah. stable. And they do the same with um, like Robert Mitchum in El Dorado, who plays the same type of character, the rummy kind of. Also, it's very funny to cast people who are like almost definitely actual alcoholics in real life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah, no Dino struggled with, with the, the bottle. And I mean, it was part of his routine practically. Yeah. I mean, he was like, that's what people expected from him. And I'm sure, it, mm-hmm. I'm sure it took a toll, but on the, on the subject of um, using wardrobe to like uh, uh, portray someone's dissolution, I love in El Dorado, like you, the first person you see on screen is Mitchum when he has mm-hmm. his shit together. And like they're, they, they portray his sobriety because he's wearing one of those sort of like breastplate Western style shirts with like 11 yeah. buttons on it. And they're yeah. all buttoned up tight. And then yeah. the next time you see him, he is like wearing a potato sack. <laughs> yeah, he's wearing <laughs> the worst shirt I've ever seen yeah. in any movie. Yeah. <laughs> and, but like the way that they do like the Dean Martin, like transformation in Rio Bravo is like, he's eventually he like, he wipes the mud off his face and then he gets a shave. And then after the shave, he gets his guns back. And then after that, he gets his clothes back. And then there's a moment where he gets snuck up on, they get the jump on him. They get the job on him. Yeah. They dump him into a, like a horse trough and then like into mud. And then again, he was clean for a very short period of time in the movie. And then he's instantly just filthy and disgusting again. And he has to fight his way back, you know? Uh, t- taking baths are, like, a very important hinge point in both of these movies. Yes. Like, you know, Mitchum has to get, he has to get, you know, soaped up, too. They put mm-hmm. it, just put him in a bucket in the jail, and he's like, I'm he's a, dig a in the, the smallest, bath there. The, the <laughs> smallest bucket I've cup. ever seen. He's in a teacup. <laughs> soaping it's himself like a, up. He's in a bucket that Bugs Bunny would put at the bottom of a 200-foot, like, high dive. <laughs> He's sitting in that and shower and, like, bathing. But, yeah, I mean, like, that, you said, like, El Dorado is just Rio Bravo with a little bit more backstory and setup. But I guess, like, in, in Rio Bravo, both of these movies just begin, too. It's just you're just, mm-hmm. like, thrown in and you see Dean Martin shambling around and, like, you know, some... Uh, uh, the the brother of like the big ranch the big landowner the cattle baron he like uh, you know 
all, all, all the other rummies at the bar get, get like sadistically uh, like torturing uh, the old drunk played by yeah. Dean Martin. And he like flips like a silver dollar into a spittoon because he's like, oh, you're that like if you're that desperate for a drink, like degrade yourself for our amusement so that you mm-hmm. can get another another swig on the whiskey bottle. And then like right before Dino goes in to fish it out, John Wayne's foot comes in, kicks over the spittoon mm-hmm. and roughs him up. And then like out of that altercation, um, the brother uh, murders a guy in the bar. And yeah. uh, uh, Wayne, John Wayne has to ar- arrest him. And then like Dean backs him up because like when you from the movie first started, you don't know if they know each other. But, yeah. it, but like then, then it is filled in that like they, they were they were once very close friends and like, you know, they were they were partners. It was a, he was a sheriff and a deputy. And then like, Dean it's always a mysterious her, girl, a mysterious someone, girl a, who left on the stagecoach. A one girl day. arrives on the stagecoach. <laughs> you're fine. She leaves on the stagecoach. You're drinking whiskey out of a boot for the next three mm-hmm. years of your life. Everyone told me that everyone told me she was no good and I didn't listen. <laughs> That's they always say that in this and um, in Rio Bravo and El Dorado. But something that shocked me that I totally forgot about Rio Bravo watching in the theater that my like jaw was on the floor is that like the first like 10 minutes are totally silent are like completely like the first words are John, maybe not 10 minutes, but the first words are John Wayne being like, Joe, you're under arrest and like pointing the gun at the brother. And I just like, that's so sick <laughs> the way that like this complete fiction of like this incredible like legend of the West is playing out in just like total without any dialogue whatsoever. You know, the characters, you know, the players, you can just like, you know, tell what's going on by the archetypes on screen. Yeah, and then, absolutely. Yeah. So like, yeah, I, I was struck rewatching it um, on, on, on film is uh, how much the actor who plays Joe Burdett looks like Ron DeSantis. Yeah. And actually, it's... He, he would go on to play Sheriff, portray Sheriff Lobo in the TV series that Homer Simpson wants to be brought back. <laughs> you know, they, they have to, they, they put him in the jail and uh, Walter Brennan is the jailer who's just like, you know, you'd be fixing to get three squares and a cot from me. But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Walter Brennan, one of the one of the great American character actors and one of the greatest and by greatest, I mean, worst and most evil Hollywood right wingers. <laughs> uh, just a little backstory on Walter Brennan. I guess you could use this in contrast to Burt Lancaster. Uh, Walter Brennan was an absolute like John Birch level right wing crank his entire career. (laughs) His house in San Fernando, California, he kitted it out with a survival bunker stocked with weapons and food for what he assumed was an imminent Soviet invasion of America. (laughs) He uh, supported all kinds of anti-communist causes and then like, you know, prayer in school, but was also known mainly for his um, virulent racism, uh, which manifested itself in the famous incident of him dancing a jig on the set of the movie he was filming when they heard that Martin Luther King was killed. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so crazy. Uh, I, I, like I literally, you know, like, they, they pulled a prospector out of a time machine and put him in movies. <laughs> like, he's from Boston. He was born in Boston. Well, I guess that makes sense. Of course. <laughs> uh, he, was, he was also, he's also like the, the Tennessee preacher that brings Gary Cooper to Jesus and Sergeant York, another great Howard Hawks film. He was, he was the stock character actor for playing these sort of like old coot type, type figures. You've also got mm-hmm. uh, Ward Bond 
as the guy who's leading like the wagon train into town, the guy who gets killed because he wants to help John Wayne. Ward mm-hmm. Bond was a guy who's basically he's in every John Wayne movie. Like he has a supporting role in yeah. most of John Wayne's westerns. He's his he's his homie. <laughs> he's like, and then of course we have uh, Angie Dickinson as Feathers, the the fallen woman character who you know sparks a romance with John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Queen Angie Dickinson. Angie Dickinson is great in this movie. Um, like I said, uh, she gets Wayne heated by flirting with him. And mm. I love the scene where uh, John Wayne says to her, you could quit playing cards and wearing feathers because she's got like a, a bill of arrest out on her. She's like, you know, she was the, the kind of the mall to this card sharp who is, you know, traveling yeah. the Mississippi, cheating people out of money until it finally caught up with him and he gets killed when they catch she him cheating. She Friday in a, in a yeah, exactly. speaking. And, you know, she sort of, you know, living by her wits, trying to raise money for the next stagecoach. She goes from town to town and stay one one step ahead of the law. And John Wayne says to her at one point, you could quit playing cards and wearing feathers. And she just goes, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's who I am. And yeah. also he says to her, um, sounds like you had a hard time. And she goes, no, I had a good time <laughs> until it yeah. got bad. But she was like, She's yeah, so cool. And I love like there's several scenes where she like is just talking is just saying her thoughts out loud like talking to John Wayne or Colorado um and it just talking long enough for a woman if you let a woman talk to herself long enough she'll eventually be in hysterics sobbing <laughs> about how in love she is with someone and like it's it's really it's really amazing. I I love her in this. Uh, well, the the, uh, the the best advice about women given in these movies, because these are movies about men, of course, mm-hmm. comes from uh, Carlos, the innkeeper, who tells John Wayne at one point, like about uh, Consuela, his his uh, uh, his wife or girlfriend. He goes, you know, uh, if, if if she's mad, and I'm sorry, it will be much pleasure to make her happy. If she's not mad, it's still the same pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> she's not mad. Yeah. No, I love but yeah, that. Yeah, like uh, he's just but part of part of the community that kind of coheres around uh, Dino and John Wayne as as they as they fend off the the aggression and hired guns of uh, Nathan Burdett, the older the the the, itch, the 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 evil rich cattle baron, which is like played by Ed Asner in El Dorado. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What, what, Hassan, what did you feel about having actors like Ed Asner and Robert Mitchum show up in westerns? Because like. I don't know. It's just like they're they're so frozen in my mind as being of the 20th century that like unlike John Wayne, who, yeah, like looks like he walked out of, you know, like a Civil War battlefield or something. Yeah. Whereas like so something about Mitchum and even Dino, they seem sort of out of place and, and, and sort of more modern than their settings. But I mean, I think I think that's just bias of how I view them as, as yeah, actors when- and cultural figures. When I think Mitchum, the first thing that pops into my head is him on the Dick Cavett show where he's wearing those like tinted sunglasses and he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, before I was an actor, I was uh, using a steel lathe and a piece of steel flew into my eyeball and I went blind for two weeks, but <laughs> I just didn't go to the doctor and it, it stopped be, it stopped being blind. <laughs> it's like, wow, <laughs> cool. I'm uh, I'm sort of amazed we didn't in in season one of Movie Mindset do a Robert Mitchum episode, but like rest assured that's got to be coming in the future. Oh yeah, because because Mitchum is the king, and I remember uh, a long time ago reading or seeing some interview with Mitchum, where like you know in the '60s because you know famously he was the the first Hollywood celeb busted for smoking 
jazz cigarettes for smoking mm. marijuana. <laughs> and, you know, like he was he was sort of a bridge between that that old Hollywood and sort of a new a newer counterculture. And he was kind of one of the old Western gangster actors that was like thought of as hip because he smokes reefer. Mm-hmm. And it was like someone was asking him about John Wayne, who was very much held as the opposite. He was like the avatar of the, you know, 60s counter revolution. And they were like, oh, like the does, does, does John Wayne, does he indulge or whatever? And Mitchum was just like, the thing you got to know about the Duke, the Duke does everything. He was like, the Duke does it all. <laughs> it was like pills, booze, weed. It was like, don't get it twisted. John Wayne could party. He could fucking don't party. Don't get it twisted. Yeah. <laughs> John Wayne doing ketamine, doing GHB, going in nowadays. <laughs> he's a, yeah, he's a, he, he's a circuit gay, John Wayne. Yeah. Well, actually, has a, let me ask you about this. I don't know if this is just me being bratty and needing to, to read homoerotic uh, uh, subtext into like classic American stories, but what do you make of the relationship between John Wayne and Ricky Nelson and John Wayne and James Caan in both of these movies? Because there's a definitely like like a daddy rent boy thing. Uh, am, I, am I crazy feeling that? No, I mean, this is like something that's like ever since the very first Western, I feel like it's been, uh, you know, because the first I think what was the first like talky golden era Western like the Virginian probably. I think even before Stagecoach, oh, like. God. I think the first like Western I think of is The Outlaw, which if anyone listening hasn't seen The Outlaw, um, you need to watch it like ASAP. I have um, not seen The Outlaw, so I'm not oh my sure God, the, the, the Outlaw is like one of the funniest movies I've ever seen because it's the most overtly gay movie I've ever seen in my entire life. It's Howard Hughes. It was John... Um, I think it was John Huston directing it, but he quit when he realized how gay it is. Um, (laughs) Like um, Howard Hughes, like finished directing it. And it's basically the same as this, where it's like this old gunslinger kind of passing the reins over to um, a newer gunslinger. But in the outlaw, that's basically the, the term they use, they keep talking about the horse, their horses. And like, it's Doc Holliday and Billy the Kid. And um, he's like Doc Holliday. Someone tells Doc Holliday, oh, Billy the Kid's in town. You have a look at his horse. It's even bigger than your horse is, Doc. (laughs) (laughs) When you were his age, like, I'd like to see him try. And he's like, sees Billy the Kid. And he's like, it's truly insane because he's like, bet you don't know this horse knows tricks. You can get it to shake. You can get the horse to shake if you really want. They're getting like so close to each other's faces. And Billy the Kid's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Because it's the worst actor you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) Just some twink. And it's very reminiscent of this, like the dynamic between (laughs) like all Westerns are gay. Because like the ending of every Western is that like the guy, the outlaw type guy finds a girl and then is domesticated. Yeah, that's like the happy ending but the real happiness is the journey it's the part where there's no woman and which is why (laughs) in the outlaw they the two main characters are having a fight the whole movie over who has to get married and who gets to keep the horse and keep riding around i mean like yeah like like that is the western genre because it's about like you know sort of about the lawman and the outlaw but like you know men, men who hew their violence to a certain code 
and out of that forge of, of, of violence and kind of proto-civilization comes American community. But like, you're so right that the ending always has to be someone settling down and getting married. But like yeah. the joy of the Western and what it represents in the American consciousness is this like mythology of freedom and liberation from the constraints of, you know, a, a feminized bourgeois society. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, to be <laughs> rolling cigs with your homies, playing with guns, going on walks um, and taking baths together, as I simply must stress. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like that, that is really that I think that to me is the beauty of Rio Bravo, because it's like what is it, like three or four days in this town, and it's just John Wayne, it's like Dean Martin struggling to put his life back together. But mm-hmm. like, but he's able to do that because he's given something to do. And what that is, is like, we're going to walk, the, we're going to walk down the one street in this town and see what happens. Yeah. And like, that's basically the action of this movie. And I, I also love that like the end of the movie, before like the big, right before the big climax, they come to the hilarious realization where they're like, oh, if we just sit in here, then they can't do anything. <laughs> yeah. And he they're tell, like... <laughs> as soon as they tell Nathan, Nathan Burdett, like the older brother who's hiring all these, gun, all these killers and cutthroats to, to, you know, uh, to break out his brother or kill the sheriff and his deputies, when Wayne just tells him, he's like, if anyone tries anything in this jail, your brother's the first to die. Like, we got a gun on him in 24-7. Yeah. And he's like, well, wouldn't that be murder? And Wayne's just like... Who's counting at that point? We'll all be dead. What's the problem? Like, yeah, yeah. And he, the the older the brother is like the brother's cheek. John Russell. Are oh man, yeah, unreal. His whoever did his fillers. Oh honey, <laughs> uh, he was uh, he was also he's in a bunch of he's in a bunch of Clint Eastwood westerns. He's in the Outlaw Josie Wales, and he's also in uh, the Pale Rider. I know the movie I mentioned on our Clint Eastwood episode, mm-hmm. but. Um, we should also talk about the uh, the music in um, Rio Bravo because it's got like this great original score. But uh, another thing Carpenter talked about in the TCM clip is the Cutthroats anthem. The Cutthroat the Cutthroats anthem is like the coolest shit ever. <laughs> it's this was, so sick. This is like an apocryphal story about the Alamo, where like the Mexican army uh, was just serenading these guys night and day until they all killed them all at the very end of it. But the, the music that you hear in this movie is original to the movie. It's an invention of the composer. And it's something they were like Nathan Burdett and his gang are held up at their saloon. And he, pay, he pays the mariachis to start playing this song. And Ricky Nelson, the Colorado, comes by the jail. And he's just like, well, if, if Burdett isn't, isn't, hasn't spoken to you yet, he's speaking now. Because you know what this song is? It's, the, it's the, what they played to the boys, those Texas boys at the Alamo. And Wayne is just like, oh, I see what he did. No quarter. No mm-hmm. mercy for the losers. <laughs> but I, I just love that idea of like, like serenading your foes and just being like, hey, you, you recognize this song? You know what it means? We're going to kill your ass as soon as we can. There's so many, so many like awesome little like touches that you wouldn't necessarily think would be in like uh a golden era Western, like that, the diegetic music of like the characters hearing this like amazing song. And like, I don't know, a bunch of other crazy um, little like visual flourishes. Like when you first see Consuela, um, she walks in and like 
stops right so that like the bull horns above the doorway threshold in the saloon are right behind her head as she's yelling at Carlos. <laughs> so it looks like she has these like horns on her head like the fucking devil. And yeah, just like so much like little shit like that that just always makes me and think like damn. That's this another thing um perfect. that's another thing Carpenter said in his TCM interview is that like why his movies matter to to him is just like how modern he regards, like how modern the style of Howard Hawks is and how much that yeah. informed the generation that came after them. Even though like these movies, at least unlike for me as a younger age, or at least on first glance, seem like a very out, very dated and like of a different time. But the, but they're really not like, I mean, because they're, they're they, I mean, like they, they, they feel alive uh, and, and, and like they feel warm and alive in a way that I think is really modern and like, contemporary. Yeah. And, as long as we're talking about music in this movie, we have to talk about, to me, the singular <laughs> scene of pure, pure cinema in Rio Bravo that elevates oh, yeah. it from an American masterpiece to, like, I think, like, a thing of transcendent beauty. And yeah. that is simply my rifle, my pony, and me. Just my rifle, pony, and me Gonna hang my sombrero on the limb of a tree coming home sweetheart darling just my rifle whip a will in the willow sings a sweet Melody. Mm-hmm. It is a scene that is like unannounced, comes out of nowhere, plays for a really long time, but it is just, it is, it's, it's Walter Brennan, John Wayne, Dean Martin, and Ricky Nelson, and they're, it's like their last night, they're like under siege, they're all holed up in the, in the jail together, they got their cigarettes, <laughs> uh, Dino's got some beer to keep his hands from shaking, you know, that's another thing these mm-hmm. movies talk about. You can be an alcoholic, uh, but if you just drink beer, you're okay. Yeah, that was so funny. (laughs) (laughs) But the scene comes out of nowhere and it's just, it's Dean Martin. He's lying on the cot. He's got his hat like tilted like all the way over his eyes. And he just gives you some of those beautiful pipes. Mm -hmm. You hear that beautiful Dean Martin voice and he sings a little cowboy ballad about like, you know, about a cowboy. There's no more, no more steers left to be roping. He's heading down to Amarillo. He wants to be in that purple sunset sky. And mm-hmm. he just wants to be with his three good companions, my rifle, my pony, and me. And Brennan's tooting on the harmonica. Ricky Nelson's accompanying backup vocals. He's mm-hmm. strumming the guitar. And then, like, Wayne has nothing to do in this scene. He's just grinning. He just looks yeah. happy to be with his friends. <laughs> yeah, he's hanging out. He doesn't sing. He doesn't contribute. He doesn't say, hey, like, I love that song. But it's just, that's what I mean about, like, this... There's no reason for it to be in the movie, but like just letting th- that scene breathe and just having like these four guys just enjoy each other's company and just bond and and then love each other. There's something that's just like my brain just hums when that when that scene happens. Yeah, it's incredible, and I love I love that Stumpy after they finish the song is like, "Why don't you play something I can sing now?" And then they actually do. They play a and whole. They do, uh, Cindy, they do it encore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nick Cave does a cover of that song too. So, <laughs> get along home, Cindy. Cindy, I'll marry you someday. Um, 
but yeah, like uh, just like the, the, the time that 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 takes out of the movie of like and this is like in the third act. It's like right before the climax. It would seem to like halt all the momentum of the movie, but it really just it crystallizes everything that the movie's about in a way that's so unexpected and beautiful. And like it just comes out of nowhere. But it's just sort of like just Dean Martin's voice is so good. And just it's just it's just so much fun. It just makes you want to be there and hang out with these guys. Yeah, it's it's like. It really, like, the whole movie is about, like, the American, like, males kind of, like, I don't know, journey of, like, trying to get shit done and getting over their demons by doing that. And I think, like, Dean Martin kind of represents that. And, um, like, yeah, it's this beautiful thing that, like, only, you know, only Dean Martin can be doing that while also singing a beautiful ballad about you know, being a cowboy. <laughs> and you're, you're right. It's about, about getting over your demons, but by doing things, by doing the work, get back mm-hmm. to this idea. And Praxis. like, and like so, so often throughout the movie, uh, Dino's character, the d- dude is sort of distracted from the DTs from like his handshaking and like him just like sweating gasoline because of how badly he like fucking ne- needs to hit that bottle that he has sort of got, he has sort of, he kicks. He kicks his habit because he's given something useful to do. He's he has given something to distract his mind from mm-hmm. the the terrible physical and mental toil toll of alcoholism. Yeah, the moment where it all like really crystallizes for him is where um the he's about to take another swig of um he's about yeah. to take a shot and give up after he gets um his clothes all dirtied again and stuff and he pours the drink into the shot yes. glass and then like freezes and because the cutthroat the cutthroat anthem is playing and he's just like and then he's like didn't spill pours it back into the bottle and he's like didn't spill a drop <laughs> cuz it's, it's the call drunk, is a yeah drunk sober or whatever you'd have to be a fucking brain surgeon to do that to pour yeah. a shot back into a bottle without <laughs> spilling anything not even with a gun to my head could i pull that off it's so cool and like i he's like it's the 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 cutthroat anthem it's like the klaxon call to action it's like all right enough bullshitting it's time to do it's time to like man up and he realizes it and just like completely stops shaking and is like yep time to go well uh after being like a a very kind of patient and sort of low-key movie the climax of this movie is just pure fun. The yeah. shootout at the end of this movie is just... If, if, if the homies weren't having fun before, once they start throwing dynamite at a house full of people and shooting mm-hmm. the dynamite sticks in the air as they blow up, <laughs> you're having a blast with your friends. Because, like, you know, uh, when, when Dean Martin takes a bath, uh, the, the cutthroats, they get the drop on them. Um, they, they, like, they get the drop on, on, on Wayne and Martin. And uh, they, take, they take Dean Martin hostage... And they're going to ransom Dean Martin for the brother. And there's this, like, you know, uh, there's supposed to be this trade-off. But, like, as they're passing each other, walking towards each other, Dean Martin just tackles this guy. And then the shootout commences. And then they've, they've, told, they've told our dear old Stumpy, we don't need you. You're too old and disabled. But he's like, concern it. If there's going to be shooting, I'm not going to have a good seat for it. 
mm-hmm. and he shows up and saves them. But then they're like, no, Stumpy, you're shooting from right next to a a wagon full of teeth dynamite. And he's like, oh, who's a fat? But then he has the brilliant idea. He's like, well, let me just take one of these crates of dynamite. And we're just going to start chucking them because like Burdett and all his all his guns are like they're holed up in this farmhouse. And they just start chucking dynamite at this farmhouse until they all just come out with their hands up. And Stumpy has an arm on him. He really he cranks some of that, those dynamites. It's really funny because he keeps throwing them short and they keep like yelling at him like, can't you throw them any further? And he's like working his way up to throwing them like they got to get their money's worth out of the yeah, dynamite. Like, are you trying to blow down? Are you trying to blow up that whole dang house or whatever? And John Wayne's like, that's the general <laughs> that's the, idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they emerge victorious. You know, like the, the law is, you know, like the, the forces of civilization stand up to those of money and, and sort of the, the bullying and, and, and privilege that goes with being able to and we see this in El Dorado, too. There's a theme of, like, the masculine ideal of the American man as one who can stand alone by themselves and, like, defend themselves or earn a living with their skill or particularly with, with their revolver, you know? Because, like, that, like, that's, like, the, the demarcation of, like, your, your, your willingness and, and, and um, uh, comfort with using lethal violence against other men is sort of, like, what... That that's the boundary between you and other men, and if that like, yeah. if that boundary can be transgressed, then you're not a man at all. Like you'll just be you'll be pushed around by the next guy with a gun. Yeah, and there's this idea about like that wealth and power gives you the ability to just buy other men who have a gun and are willing to die or kill for it. But like it's it's the way that distorts the kind of the. You, the, the heroic ideal of being a standing, being a man who can stand for himself rather than have just use money to let other people do it for you. And there's also um, kind of a judgment call, like a further demarcation in El Dorado where, um, you know, John Wayne gets offered. The movie starts with John Wayne being offered that kind of hired gun role. And he turns it down because he's like, actually this like, you know, my friend is the sheriff, but also he's like this family that owns this town is like actually a noble family and they worked hard for their for their keep. And, um, you know, I don't want to be part of like bullying them. And that's kind of the line drawn between John Wayne and Nels McLeod, the McLeod, the Scarface yeah, the, gunslinger, yeah, who's awesome in the. In oh, that McLeod movie. is great. He's yeah, so cool. And he's like, there's a a real respect between John Wayne and him. Professional courtesy, as they say to each other back and forth many times in that movie. Yeah, yeah, and he, it's it's like, um, you know, but John Wayne gets the drop on McLeod because he underestimates him, and he like dives and shoots him with his like bum arm yeah and mcleod is like oh it's a great moment where he was just like you didn't he was like the whole throughout the whole movie him and mcleod are like when they first meet each other he's like uh he doesn't know who john wayne is but he's like there's only three guys i know who could be as fast as me like this dude he names john wayne's character and some other guy and he's like well i am this guy so from that point he's like their rep precedes them He's like, so like one of them's dead, the other's me, and then yeah. the third is uh, is you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's this question of like, if they end up on opposite sides of this range war, are they ever going to get to truly test out? You know, are are you good enough? You know, who who's better? Who's faster? And at the end of El Dorado, 
which is like, you know, it's made in 1966. It's like seven or eight years later. And in both the Mitchum and Wayne character, who are a little bit older at this point, there begins to be like coming out of middle age more because John Wayne's character gets shot early in the movie and he has like a bullet lodged near his spine or something. That yeah. He just sort of deals with for most of the movie. Yeah. But there's the a question about like, like yeah. the doctor's like, I can't dig it out, but you know, just try to go to another doctor and ask them about it later on. Maybe. <laughs> okay. But like, you know, near, near the climax of El Dorado, like John Wayne has the upper hand during a shootout and like his, his back seizes up and like the whole left side of his body becomes paralyzed. Yeah. And he has like, he can't hold the gun anymore. So like both him and Mitchum in that movie, it's a question not just of like, can you do the work, but can you still do the work? Yeah. Like, you know, is, is your body going to give out on you? Like, are, you know, are you, are you truly as fast or as tough as you once were? And uh, at the end of the movie, like Wayne kind of plays possum and he kind of dives off this um, uh, stagecoach and just shoots McLeod as he's falling, like he doesn't give him give him a chance to draw, and as mm-hmm. he's dying, McLeod sort of smiles at him and he goes, "You never even gave me a chance, did you?" And John Wayne goes, "You're too good, like, too like good that's the only chance, chance I have. Yeah, you're too yeah. good to give any chance to." And then he he like it's not even cheating; he just sort of smiles and gets it because once again, it goes back to this idea of the work and being yeah. a professional. Mm-hmm. It's all about the you got to get the job done, you know. There's a, there's a few things I want to talk about in El Dorado, but I just want to get to the last scene in Rio Bravo, where, like you said, John Wayne has to be domesticated. Is, Fe- is Feathers going to leave on that stagecoach? And he goes to her room at the hotel, and she's wearing this like very sort of like a 19th century hoe outfit. She's got the, yeah. know, the lingerie, the, the feather boa. And the corset. This great ex- the cor- yeah, the corset. You know, she's all pushed up. And it's sort of like there's this question of like, oh, like, is she just going to be a a prostitute to pay her way to the next the next town? And then like there's this whole like, you know, this moment with her where she gets like she wants to know, will 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 he let her go outside wearing this corset? And then he finally breaks down. He's like, if you go out wearing that, I'll arrest you. And that's when (laughs) that's when she knows that he loves her. Yeah, because he's like, like, he's like, where's Giuliani? He's like, those tits belong to me. I want to claim my tits. No one else can see those tits. And she's like, well, she's like, would you like me to dress like this only for you? And he's like, you betcha. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it also, it it harkens back to their first meeting when, um, uh, Carlos is showing him this, uh, these sexual pantaloons that he bought <laughs> he gets for Consuela. Consuela. Yeah. yeah. Sexual and style pantaloons. They're been, this is like the, the hottest thing you could wear as a woman in the 19th century was just yeah. like bright red MC hammer pants that you would wear <laughs> under eight other dresses. <laughs> it's so funny. And like, he's like, um, like Angie Dickinson appears in the door and is like, they have like a little tete-a-tete. And then as John Wayne is leaving, she says, Oh, Sheriff, you forgot your pants. <laughs> he like freezes for a second. <laughs> it's like the pants are on the other the other legs, I guess. Yeah. Now at the end. <laughs> but yeah, like and uh was it Carlos helps him out during the shooting. I just think Rio Bravo, as compared to El Dorado, it's just so much more focused on the town and its residents and its inhabitants. Whereas El Dorado really is more just a kind of about John Wayne and Robert Mitchum and their you know, their, their various paths in life. It's just, it's, 
it, it's it's it, El Dorado seems like more of a, a conventional movie in a lot of, of yeah like, what you expect from like the plot of a movie than Rio Bravo. For, it seems like a yeah. lot of, much more conventional in a lot of ways. For example, the um, instead of the I think kind of the an analog you can draw between the two is um, Rio Bravo has the songs that Dean Martin and um, it has like those songs and then it also has the cutthroat anthem which is this recurring musical motif and then in um in el dorado instead of a song it's this poem that uh james Kahn keeps saying uh, and, by edgar Allan poe yeah yeah i don't know i i got the, like the feeling i was watching it thinking like like I wonder if James Caan, if they asked him to sing this and he was just a bad singer and they couldn't do it. Or like, and so he just has to say it like a poem because it's very awkward. It's kind of awkward him being like, well, time to say this poem now. <laughs> like, um, and the kind of equivalent of the Cutthroat song, I guess, is um, their, the Stumpy of that film's like bugle call that yeah, he's he does. Like a, like, a, a cracked cavalry veteran who just like, yeah. he's not as old or decrepit as Stumpy, but like you, he, he sort of, uh, he needs to communicate through his bugle. He's always just yeah. running in and out of rooms, uh, signaling retreat or advance on his. Yeah. And there's not, there's not as much comic relief. It's much more. Yeah. It's a much more straightforward. Um, I mean, actually, I think, honestly, like, Robert Mitchum's portrayal of alcoholism is way more played for laughs than Dean Martin's. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, okay, you remember the scene where, uh, they're, they're like, Wayne is encountering uh, Mitchum, and, like, by the way, like, in this movie, it's very clear that, like, they've only been apart for, like, seven months, but in that, like, half a year, Robert Mitchum's life has completely gone to shit. Yeah. <laughs> that he is just not crawling out of a bottle for the last, like, yeah, half year. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, he's tied one on tight and he's just like passed out in, in the in the jail. And then like they have to because like, like, you know, uh, McLeod and his killers are coming like they, they Wayne knows that they've been hired and they're coming to town to take out Robert Mitchum. So they have mm-hmm. to sober him up. And uh, James Kahn's character, Mississippi, whose real name is like, what, what's his name in that movie? Uh, fuck. His name. Hang on. I have it pulled up here on in another window. Hang on. Alan Bourdillon Traherne. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone just like, just call him Mississippi. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the bootleg um, sort of hangover cure that James Caan comes up with in that movie, where they basically mix like cayenne pepper and motor oil together. Yeah. Cayenne pepper, th- like absinthe, yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> it's, and gunpowder is the final ingredient. <laughs> they open yeah. up a bunch of bullets and pour them into this, d- this deadly concoction. And they just, you know, they, uh, so there's a scene where they think they like, um, pinch his nose and just pour this down his gullet to sober him up. And then like, it's, it's so toxic that you throw up everything in your stomach and it also prevents it's, it's, it's so brutal to your stomach that it prevents you from drinking alcohol after you've taken the cure. So, and one of the funniest scenes in El Dorado, they just pour this down Mitchum's throat as he's like, you know, barely conscious 
And then as soon as they do, he starts convulsing and Wayne goes, let's get out of here. And they just <laughs> lock him in there like, hey, guys, quick, run. It's like, <laughs> we, it's we like just they gave just put this, uh, to dynamite or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. We just gave this highly dubious uh, folklore uh, <laughs> cure to our friend here. They're like, uh, I don't know what's happening. Better get out of here. Run. It's literally Looney Tunes. It's like yeah. if they did that to Bugs Bunny and his head exploded or something. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot more of the comic relief is saddled on. And I wonder if this is because like as Hawks was getting older, he thought he thought to like shift this in a way or something. But um, the a lot more, a lot less of the comic relief is on the older character, the older member of the posse. Um, And a lot more of it is on James Caan and the younger kind of like most of the comic relief is Robert Mitchum and James Caan. Because James Robert Mitchum doesn't even know who James Caan is until like an hour and a half into the movie. Yeah, he keeps he's asking, like, who is this guy? Who, who is Mississippi? He keeps saying Mississippi. Who is that? Because he's like blinded <laughs> drunk until like the last half yeah. hour of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say though, like... Uh, Eldorado, I think in in the the young kid character, I think Eldorado has the edge because I think James Caan as Mississippi is just a lot cooler than Ricky Nelson as Colorado. Well, I have a few thoughts on this. I think that um, Ricky Nelson is, God bless his heart, not a great actor in this movie. I mean, no, he plays the that's like a character. He plays that character perfectly. The outlaw type. You know, like in The Outlaw, the same character is played by, um, I forget the actor, but it's the exact same performance. It's always like the mouth opens, like eyes squinted, barely moving, barely getting your words out of your mouth type performance. And I think like Ricky Nelson's, my theory is that they did some alchemy and they were like, okay, real Bravo, we had a twink, like a pure twink, (laughs) Ricky Nelson. And then... For El Dorado, he was like, what if we take the twink and we subtract the femininity and we take that and put it separately? Then we got James Caan and then this femininity. What do we do with it? Well, let's give um, the um, the McDonald family, the good family, let's give them a daughter who's like feisty. Kind of and, butch. And yeah, she yeah, shoots yeah, guns yeah, yeah. and has messy hair and is sort of like tougher yeah. than her brothers. And she's the one who shoots John Wayne at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, yeah. She's the one who fucks everything up by shooting John Wayne <laughs> at the very beginning. <laughs> but and, th- this um, is, by the way, this is after John Wayne killed her younger brother basically for no reason. I mean, not yeah. for no reason, but like, uh, yeah, like he just kills this kid because he like wakes up too quickly and starts firing a rifle. Well, it's it's an even sterner like admonition of men send who a boy won't to do, do the a man's work. Job, yeah, of men who w- can't do the work. You know, um, it's all about doing the work. And like that scene where like okay, so like the younger brother has been left behind to sort of like guard his post, and like uh, if um, Ed Asner's goons are coming for them, like he has to fire a shot in the air to warn them. And then get, hightail it out of there and get back to the house. He falls asleep on his post. And as John Wayne is riding back from like an unrelated uh, encounter, he's sort of stirred awake and uh, just like wakes up and just starts firing a rifle. And John Wayne just sees a guy with the high ground shooting a rifle and he just, you know, <laughs> whips out his six shooter and plugs him right in the stomach. Mm-hmm. And then the dude kills himself. 
Yeah, like, this is that like was a really, really dark crazy. beginning into the movie because he's like, "You're gut shot," and like, "There's basically nothing I can do for you." So then you hear, "Well, no, you hear, he says, you hear a second shot." He says, "Um, he, John Wayne yells at the dad because he's like, he told he yeah, says that, the dad was the one who told him that like, yeah. hey, a gut shot, you should just kill yourself." Yeah, <laughs> John Wayne's. He like, was like, he probably could have made it here, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> literally. <laughs> and it's like, it really is like a lot there's like a cynicism in el dorado that is not present like even the kid like when he's gut shot being like my insides are on fire i can't even move like it hurts so it hurts so bad is like wow that's something that would never be in like frick in like rio bravo like if yeah dean martin got shot he would be like oh i'm all right just skimmed me or something you know um, but yeah, like when 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 John Wayne's character like comes back to the 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 good family's ranch with just like their youngest brother slung over his horse and just depositing his body there, he's sort of like angry at the at the father. Yeah, like you said, for sending a boy to do a man's job, and he's dead because like not through any fault of my own, even though I basically killed him. But like he was just not competent enough to do the work. He didn't take it seriously, so then he ended up dead, and he was like. Yeah, like you told him about the gut shot thing, and he was like, I was trying to help him, but he basically had a gun I didn't see. And mm-hmm. you do the math, and he said, do you want to ask me any more questions? But the dad is like not even mad at John Wayne. He's sort of like, well, thank you. Because yeah. otherwise, like if you just left him there, like coyotes would have just eaten his body. So I guess we can give him a, a Christian burial now. But thank you, guy, who's good at his job of killing people for sort of, yeah, sort of admonishing me uh, for having a son who's not good at killing people. Yeah, there's like a crazy weird respect between, you know, John Wayne and um, Mr. McDonald because he it also is like this question of legacy. And, you know, there's a good a good side that has control of the town and a bad side that's trying to wrestle control of the town. And part of what makes the good side good, I think, and this is like kind of seen um, is the McDonald's. It's it's this father and he has three sons and one daughter and he has this family that it's he's going to pass the town down to his family and they've been working on it for this whole time. It's their own blood, sweat and tears. And then there's Ed Asner, who doesn't have a family, just buys hired guns. And that's yeah. and, and like, that's kind you, of. Yeah, you definitely see bad. this in in even in like the later like the 70s or 80s Clint Eastwood Westerns as well. It's just, it's a constant theme, even in the classic and then like and the Shane. More, yeah, as well. It's, it's a classic theme about uh, a skepticism of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, capitalism and like mm-hmm. money and power, but it's a distinctly American and kind of like Republican. Uh, it's, it's, it's the, it's big business is bad, but small business is the most virtuous thing you can be engaged in. It's like, yeah. you know, like uh, it's, it's the, the, the prospector, you know, like uh, the, 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 the small farm, uh, just like the the cowboy, it's 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 the family business that has ties to a community and has sort of um, like worked the land to hew out of it civilization and like they are in, and they are entitled to the fruits of that. Whereas then there's like the railroad baron, uh, the the cattle baron, like these these oligarchs that just represent just wealth to buy a version of community for themselves or authority that is not their right because they haven't worked for it. And yeah, that. That's something I noticed in Rio Bravo. I noticed a line that I like don't think I've ever heard before in the movie um like 
fourth time watching it because the subtitles were on. But um, when Stumpy is talking to the becheek-boned, um, like, Baron-type brother, he says um, they're in the jail cell, and Stumpy's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, your brother's li- liable to get accidentally shot. And Stumpy's like, heck, I'll make sure of it, which is <laughs> a great line. And... Um, Oh no! Like I, there's another time where the brother behind bars, he was like, "If you do anything, this this guy's crazy enough to kill me or shoot me or something." And somebody goes, "He's not as dumb as I thought he was." Yeah, <laughs> so good. And um, but the the but cheekbone brother is like, still some bad, still some bad blood between us. I see. And Stumpy says, 460 acres might not seem like a heck of a lot to you, but it was to me." And it's like, oh, okay. So this guy like yeah. must have like bought stumpy's land out from under yeah, bought him out yeah exactly. yeah yeah which is like an interesting little thing to just throw in there you know one line like and like you know uh at least the the cheekbone guy at least he has a brother but like ed asner in el dorado is just a man alone like he doesn't yeah. even carry a gun and john wayne makes a point of uh you know <laughs> pointing that out to him at one point but like yeah he is mm-hmm. just a man alone with the with the people and power that he buys mm-hmm yeah, I, like I said, like it, El Dorado is a very similar plot. It's just like the lawman and drunk roles are just reversed. Mitchum starts out as the upright lawman, and Wayne is kind of the, the more of the gun for hire, a little bit more rough around the edges. But it's Wayne who becomes the the lawman and has to save Robert Mitchum, who has become completely besotted by drink. Um, it's you know Mississippi is the kid instead of Colorado. Um, but like, yeah, it's, it's it basically like the, the, the plot happens about halfway through the movie when they arrest Ed Asner and put him in the jail. And then like that starts the clock on, on that pressure cooker scenario of like when they're going to break him out, how they're going to try to break him out, how they're going to stand up to all these hired guns and then included headed at this time by a guy who actually has a name, like all the thugs in Rio Bravo, like are not characters at all. But in this, yeah. you have the McLeod character who's like uh, just like a different, a slightly, a slightly more amoral version of John Wayne in this movie. But they both, yeah. he's not evil. They just both, he's willing to work for evil people. And that's what separates him and John Wayne. Yeah, he's more mercenary. And that's yeah. kind of the only difference, the only thing edging him out. He's more mercenary. And in a weird way, he has like this, like more honor for combat than John Wayne because he's like, oh, I wanted to kind of face you down in a, you know, uh, an even you know, draw type yeah. scenario. One but, V one straight up. Yeah. And, but it doesn't matter because he's like mercenary and more like less moral overall. Therefore, because, you know, John Wayne did do a bit of a dirty trick, but you know, it was it's hey, for it's, good dude, in the end. I yeah. mean, it, dude, you're being paid money to kill people. There's no such thing yeah. as fair or unfair. It's just, exactly. Exactly. And like, and that's what I love so much about the scene at the end between John Wayne and the McLeod character is the begrudging respect of not giving him a chance because yeah. that's really what it means to be that good is don't get, don't be dumb enough to give the other guy a chance. Exactly. And it's like, you know, it's John Wayne's experience kind of tells him that cause he keeps, yeah. he always calls um, Mississippi green, like throughout the whole movie. He's like, mm-hmm. yeah, he's green because he, saves his life like twice within the first five minutes of meeting him because he's just like you know very impulsive and reckless and kind of a a liability to the whole team until the very end of the movie honestly. Well, he, I, the thing i love about the mississippi character is that he doesn't even use a gun like when we first meet him he like stares down like five guys at a card table being like you know i've been 
I've, you know, I've killed three other guys. You know, it's a classic, you know, uh, revenge mission because like they killed mm-hmm. his father figure and he's been tracking them down for three years and you're the last one on my list. And McLeod's like, wait a second. He doesn't have a gun. I want to see how this plays out. I want to see how he gets the upper hand on a table full of guys with guns when he's unarmed. But no, he, he, flicks an, he has a knife like down the collar of his shirt, which is a knife arrangement I've rarely seen uh, ever in movies or elsewhere. Yeah. He's, he's hiding a blade down like the back of his, the collar of his shirt, and he throws it. And he kills a guy with a knife. But then I also love when John Wayne, when John Wayne sort of adopts Mississippi and sort of like uh, mans him up a bit, he's like, we got to get you a gun. And he takes him to the Swede. And I love this because mm-hmm. this is literally like, this is like a Red Dead Redemption. This is just the video game where they're just like, hold on before we go to the next mission, we have to upgrade your kit. We go to the gunsmith (laughs) and he gets, he's like, what can you give me a gun for a guy who can't shoot? And he just gives him this fucking double barrel sawed off fucking like, but like as a pistol that just like the spray on this thing is like a 30 yard radius, like 30 yard radius just gets peppered with fucking buckshot. And, and he still I, can't hit anyone with this thing. It's so he's funny. Still the, like the only person he hits is John Wayne on accident. He yeah. wings him at one point. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, the I also love that when he's like he's has Mississippi and takes him out into the, the desert. And he's like, all right, let's let's see if you got what it takes to use a gun. And then he's like, all right, now draw and shoot that cactus. And then he shoots and he shoots like a foot to the left of the cactus once. And he's like, all right, you're hopeless. <laughs> he's like, all right, that's enough for that. We need to get you a uh, big shotgun. And, you know, like, uh, also, I really love in the, um, as, as I gleefully read into it, the homoerotic relationship between John Wayne and James Caan in this movie. Is it like after he takes some gun shopping, he's sort of like, James Conn changes outfits and like John Wayne just starts dressing him. And the first thing you see as they like when they get to the town of El Dorado is James Conn. Everyone's making fun of the stupid hat he wears throughout the whole movie because it's like his friend's hat, but it's not a proper cowboy hat. But the next thing you see with him after he like gets adopted by John Wayne, he's in like a skin tight leather shirt. Yeah. He dresses in pure fetish gear, like from that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like for the rest yeah, of the yeah. movie. He's wearing like Gambit's hat from X Men, and then yeah. fetish, like leather fetish gear. <laughs> it's so cool. And um, there's another moment in Rio Bravo where the scene where um, Angie Dickinson throws the flower pot out of the window to give Ricky Nelson the distraction he needs to like shoot, uh, throw throw John Wayne his rifle and shoot these two guys who had got the drop on him. And then, like, after he does that, he walks away, and there's this scene where John Wayne kind of turns around and looks at him as he goes and just starts grinning. He has this grin that goes up to, like, his ear, and yeah. he's just like, I'm liking what I'm seeing in this young cowpoke. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to break this hoss in. Yeah. It's and, so cool. Uh, here, here's another detail that connects these two movies. Did you notice that, like, when we first see Robert Mitchum in El Dorado, and he's like rousting John Wayne out of his bed because he thinks he's been hired to like gun him down. He's carrying that repeating uh, carbine uh, rifle. And it's the same exact one that John Wayne has and ro- walks around and carries it every second of Rio Bravo. Mm-hmm. And in El Dorado, John Wayne goes, something about that looks familiar. And Mitchum says to him, he goes, I have it set up in exactly the same way you used to. So it's this sort of like <laughs> acknowledgement uh, that connects yeah. these two movies that like that, that not just that they may take place in like the same universe, but they are like, it's, it's winking that they are the same movie. Like, yeah. Just Mitchum has taken the mantle 
of the the rifle carrying lawman from John Wayne. Yeah, exactly. It's incredible. I also we we'd be I think like the one beat that really connects these movies like I think like the one where I was like, "Oh, these are the same movie." was when um there's a part in both movies where the drunk gets kind of laughed out of the evil saloon because it's a Western. So there's a good saloon in town. That's cool. And then there's an evil one that's like shady. And that's where and like, all the, the people there guys. are sadists and cruel. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, they um, where like the, someone goes into the evil saloon. Um, the drunk goes into the evil saloon, gets laughed at and then leaves. And then they drive a, bad guy a would-be assassin out of uh, a barn and he escapes into the bad guy saloon and then the drunk character goes in and everyone no one takes him seriously like, oh, and he oh no no one came on in him. here and then yeah. in both movies there's one guy in the bar who's like no one came in here what are you what are you talking about and then they both go i'll remember you said that <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i'll <laughs> so remember cool. you said that yeah yeah because yeah of course when they like in in uh, in Rio Bravo, he's like on the second floor, and mm-hmm. Dean Martin uh, he shoots him, like turns around and shoots him from like, then he falls off the balcony, and then El Dorado he's hiding behind the piano, <laughs> and there's a great scene where the piano player start he's, he keeps playing throughout all this tension, but he keeps playing worse and worse and worse. Yeah, it's and Mitchum's so cool. like, you're playing a lot of sour notes on that there piano. Would you like to stop? And he's like, yes. And then he just dives away and he just shoots the piano and he shoots the guy through the piano. He's crouched yeah. behind it. It's so sick. <laughs> um, I would say like, like there's definitely more action in El Dorado. Like I think the shootout in the church is like a really good like, yes. action scene. Like the, the shootout in the church piece. is awesome. Like where the guys are like, they're sniping at them from the, the, the bell tower. And then like they just start shooting the bell. So that they can like uh, you know uh, advance like they, they cover, but the, the noise of that bell going off as rifle bullets hit it, and then they get in the church. It's like just a great western shootout, which like you know, El Dorado. I mean, Rio Bravo. There's a couple shootouts, but there really is only one like big action set piece at the end with the dynamite. Yeah. Whereas like Rio Bravo, it just expands the aperture. There's way more like. There's, there's in the beginning there's big scenes of like big open sky and like horses being corralled through a yeah, creek hundreds and just of like horses, a, sort yeah. of western stuff you know whereas Rio Bravo really is just it could be a play it, it could yeah. be like you could just like you could stage it as a play like mm-hmm. all the action in it without cutting really anything yeah oh we also got to talk about James Kahn's, um the scene that brought uh, a dead silence to the theater Oh that, my god! Um, when I saw, <laughs> I saw it at the Museum of the yes. Moving Image. Yes, this is a, <laughs> uh, questionable. Now, but this movie was made in 1966. But yeah, uh, so you you explain you explain the James Con scene, the 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 yikes from me, dog. Yeah, there's a scene where James Con and um, you know, James Con, the older guy who has a um, a bow and arrow because they're on a stealth mission. Um. And there's a oh, guy. Oh, so clutch for stealth missions. So clutch. yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a guy guarding the back door, and um, the older guy is like, it's James Con, the old guy, and um, I think is it Robert Mitchum or is it? Yeah, it's Mitchum it goes in the back with him. Yeah, yeah, and um, the old guy's like, all right, let me just draw back and let me just draw a beat on this guy and uh, snipe him with my bow, and. Um, 
James Khan is like, wait, I just checked the I game manual. I got a manual. better idea. <laughs> I just checked the game manual and he's going to scream if you do that. So hang on. I have I have a, a way better idea. And he just like goes over and puts on like a racist a f- hitman disguise of a... <laughs> uh, he puts a flower pot on his head and like a, and like a, yeah. a curtain, like a black curtain, like just over his shoulders. Yeah. And then he starts immediately talking in like mock Chinese like pigeon Chinese <laughs> yeah. like so Sali even and does the, the eyes he thing. even does yeah. the eye thing which is cr- so crazy and he walks I love the idea of him walking up to the guy pulling his eye, eyes back and just <laughs> yeah. going I am Chinese yeah and the guy's like well oh hey there fella sorry but you can't come in here <laughs> like, see what, what's so funny about that scene at least from like our modern perspective is of course the hilarious racism but even funnier than that is the idea that that would have worked on anyone yeah it like, makes I don't care how no fucking sense. drunk you are that James Khan coming up to you with a flower pot in his head going so Sally so Sally be Chinese yeah. and they just yeah. be like is this an Asian or what I don't know what's going on here yeah it's so ridiculous it's absolutely insane maybe that's just how dumb <laughs> because like there were a ton of Chinese Chinese people in the old in the old Western times. It's like there's a Chinese person how in dumb they were back then. Like in Rio spot, Bravo, there's a Chinese spotting guy. racial. Yeah, there is an actual Chinese guy who's like the 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 town coroner. Yeah, then and that was made in 1959, not 1966. Yeah. They got worse in 1966. Yeah. I bet. I honestly like. What if James Khan was like? I have an idea for this scene. <laughs> I, have this, I have this idea. I have this character. I've been meaning to try, meaning to bust out. You know. Uh, yeah. So that, that 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 was definitely a highlight of the movie. But I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't have. I don't have much more on on either of these movies. Uh, yeah. I mean, you should definitely watch these movies. They're they're incredible. They're amazing. I mean, this was this was our first foray into like the Western genre, which I'm you know I'm glad, I'm glad we did even as a bonus episode. I mean, because like you know to me it's like the the Western like of that 40s and 50s like the golden era of Hollywood. It really is like the genre of like the Western, the noir or gangster movie, and then like the screwball comedy are like the distinctly American film genres that like we invented. Everyone else it was everyone else was influenced by it, like midwife so much of the style that we take for granted today but like particularly for american movies like in those genres it's really on the canvas on which we kind of like communicated our own sense of self and like and our sense of destiny of like what where we're where, like what the 20th century would become yeah absolutely and the the personal journey of the the american man and his you know his you quest to beat homosexuality <laughs> and find a wife. <laughs> and you know what? It, it always works. It always mm-hmm. works. And you know, it like, always works. Th- despite being, you know, uh, associated with being like this culturally reactionary genre, like the classic Western for me, yeah, despite having you know certain re- reactionary archetypes or racist stereotypes of Chinese people or Mexican people, when it comes to his portrayal of the American masculinity, I think like people might hear that and you might think it's this like very kind of stern, I don't know, like Andrew Tate kind of thing, or at least compared to today, the today's conception of what it means to be a man is like the opposite of ever having fun with anyone, let alone your good man. It's just like, there's just no fun. It is such a grim, grim, a grim and brutal world, you might say, but it's just, it's so austere and the portrayal of masculinity in these movies, while serious 
and you know traditional in in certain senses i think is like what it comes down to is just having fun with your friends and yeah. not being and getting over yourself being an asshole and being selfish so that you can continue to have fun with your friends yeah like modern masculinity is very you know, you have to be an ascetic monk without a religion, basically. <laughs> you have to have Yeah, without no believing fun. in God, you have to deny yeah. yourself all the shit that people used to do. But at least there yeah. was some expectation of eternal reward. This is just sort of like, uh, will people think I'm scary on the internet? Or like, will some imaginary woman want to have sex with me? Yeah, and this is more like, you know, you gotta... It's you and your homies against the world, you know? Yeah. And you gotta, you gotta keep the jail safe. Um, and you got to protect, protect what's yours, protect, you know, the law and what you stand for and your values. And, um, and then like, you know, definitely drink, but like, if it becomes too much of a problem, you know, stick to beer. And I do yeah, like at the end of it, I like at the end of El Dorado, yes, yes, Robert exactly. Mitchell just pours himself a nice <laughs> glass of whiskey, but yeah. he's got the buttoned up shirt. So he's like, it's all it's okay fine. now. Yeah, I can yeah, handle yeah. it. Yeah, he's yeah, cured. You know, he's just, cured. Just, just, you know, one, one before bed at night. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so cool. So, yeah, uh, that does it for uh, th- this movie mindset episode. Uh, a little bit shorter than our normal ones, but, you know, fuck you. You didn't think you were getting anything today. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> there you Period. go. And, you know, uh, stay tuned on Barbie and Oppenheimer. I have yet yeah. to see Barbie. I would really like to talk about those two movies because I think they make a really interesting pairing. And I think they say a lot of interesting things about where movies are now that uh, there's just a lot to talk about there. But just hold your horses. Just be a little bit patient. Like I said, gray area. We'll figure it out, but we don't want to step on anyone's toes. If you are a guild official or on the board of SAG or WGA, please send us an official dispensation to do the episode. Yeah. If you would like to hear us talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer. But I'm gambling that one of you out there is on one of those boards. Yeah, absolutely. Put it on official letterhead. Send it to us. We'll do the episode. And uh, also, I'll use this opportunity to say, I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. But uh, officially now, October 4th will be the reappearance of Movie Mindset in our uh, Goolvy Scream Set uh, horror movie uh, special five mm-hmm. episode run for this uh, spooky season. We're doing horror movies for you this Halloween. We're coming back on October 4th, but stay tuned. We may drop some uh, bonus surprise episodes uh, between now and then. So that's it. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.